Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're revisiting our interview with music supervisor Susan Jacobs. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, we're back to our conversation about Malcolm McLaren. We first aired our interview with Paul Gorman about his biography of Malcolm McLaren in 2020. Today, we're revisiting it because of Danny Boyle's new show, Pistol, featuring McLaren as a prominent character. And while the show isn't exactly a critic's pick, it's uh, about 56% (laughs) on Rotten Tomatoes, Greg. Paul's book is a hit with at least these two critics. Uh, Let's go back to that interview for a deeper look at the man behind the myth, Malcolm McLaren. We want to welcome British journalist uh, Paul Gorman to the show. His new book is called The Life and Times of Malcolm McLaren. Greg, I think it has the distinction of being the heaviest uh, book we have ever (laughs) talked about on Sound Opinions. (laughs) It is quite an accomplishment, Paul. Encyclopedic, uh, but gripping. Welcome to the show. Well, it's good to be here. Well, thank you. Uh, You know, why don't we start at the obvious place? Malcolm McLaren, why is he worth uh, 860-odd pages of biography? You know, because it's a name, let's face it, uh, that many people won't even know unless they're of a certain age, knowing him as the spiky-haired redhead who uh, steered the, (laughs) steered, in quotes, the career of the Sex Pistols. Right. Um, What drew you to this subject? Well, because I didn't think that really his contribution to pop culture and the wider culture had been recognised in the right way. I think he was partially to blame for this because, you know, he dubbed himself in the Sex Pistols biopic The Embezzler. And so he kind of painted himself into a corner as this kind of caricature manager, evil manager and manipulator of the media and the people that... Uh, who were his charges, when in fact that was a position he took. You know, I got to know him later in life and he was uh, he was quite interesting about that. He said that he didn't realise that people would take it seriously. If you called yourself the embezzler, he thought, well, they're going to know that it's a put-on. And in fact, of course, uh, the opposite was true. And so uh, some of the people that he worked with you know, kind of uh, burnish that reputation. And so I thought he needed springing from that trap. And so um, that's really why I embarked upon it. Well, like all uh, great biographies, Paul, and this is a great one. Thank you. Um, 
even if you take out the music fandom element, uh, if you don't care about early Adamant or Bow Wow Wow or the Sex Pistols or, indeed, uh, McLaurin's own brief hip-hop career, but influential, uh, you know, uh, Buffalo Gals, what a life! You know, it turns out that Malcolm McLaren's greatest influence, besides the Situationists and Dada and, and throwing hand grenades into the middle of anything, was his grandmother. Yeah. This notion that comes from grandma that the worst sin is to be boring. Better to be bad than to be boring. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, he was kind of inculcated in this uh, from a very early age. His father left the family household when he was 22 months old. His mother wasn't particularly interested in him or his uh, slightly older brother. And so McLaren in particular was left to the clutches of this very domineering grandmother who'd been a frustrated treader of the boards. She wanted to be in the music hall or, you know, become an actress. And she'd been stymied by that at a young age. And she was an extremely magnetic charismatic and troublemaking person and so i think she kind of got her jollies by getting hold of this kid at a young age and really teaching him in the ways to be naughty and the ways to be <laughs> extrovert and the ways to upset people and the ways to be unembarrassable and all of those things that if you know anything about mclaren that you associate with him yeah, he did her proud. You know, and we also get uh, an historic portrait of those post-World War II years in the UK, where, you know, truly the uh, identity of the empire was being questioned. And then the crazy psychedelic era, mm -hmm. which had an impact on young Malcolm, mm -hmm. uh, the punk era, where he was front and center, and then the the multiculturalism that was coming in with hip-hop and the, the growing diversity mm -hmm. of, uh, of England. Well, you know, uh, this was another reason, uh, another impulse to write the book is here is somebody who was born in January 1946. So, I mean, you can kind of calculate that his inception was really the end of the Second World War, nine months yeah. before. And so he springs into being in that very period when, in, certainly in Britain, certainly in the US and certainly in the West, a lot of very interesting people start to come uh, to life in the 50s and 60s, say the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or, or those people, uh, slightly older than McLaren, exported popular culture and made it really the mainspring of our cultural activity in this country. He, he did that in a different way because he had the brain and the heart and the aspect of a visual artist. And so he kind of brought art, art practice and design and those visual dexterities to popular culture. And that changed the game considerably. By 1980, by 1977, certainly through the post-punk era, what you looked like and the way you visually expressed yourself meant as much he believed, as the music that you made. It was no longer good enough for Rory Gallagher to wear a check shirt and play very mm. long guitar solos, very, a great artist. But there had to be a visual element which would stimulate the populace. And this was really his central preoccupation.
have that thing which is what McLaren used to call, and I have to think about this to get it right because I often get it wrong, the look of music and the sound of fashion. And what he meant by that was that when one kind of closes into the other, everything pops. And so when you get Roxy Music, say, or David Bowie, or these very English people, who British people, who understand visual culture and then combine it with their unique sound, something else happens. And it's particularly appropriate to, for some reason, to this tiny island. And that was a lifelong obsession of his. And so here was a very potent mixture of politics and art, radical politics with radical art thought. And this appealed very much to the young Malcolm Edwards as he was then. Did he have a sense of what he wanted to do at that point? Make trouble. Shake things up. <laughs> Always. <laughs> but, you know, there was, there was an intent behind it, but it was this disgruntlement, which Jim was talking about, which comes from the grandmother, this dissatisfaction and this willingness to upset the daily life. You know, the one thing about McLaren that kind of I, I can't quite suss out is that he... I don't think he ever thought of the Sex Pistols as a great band. I mean, you know, the group that couldn't play, a fabulous disaster. No, no, he, he did. He did. He did think that they were a great band, but he realized that there is a conversation that he has with Steve Jones on Jones's Jukebox, uh, Steve's yeah. um, radio show in L.A. But this is way back Decades in Decades later. Yeah. 2006. And Steve Jones says, why did you say that? We could play. You knew we could play. And they were a very dynamic band. But he said... Of course, I knew you could play, but I knew that that wouldn't make any difference. Going to a record company at that time and saying, I've got a great bunch of guys who can play really well, wouldn't make any difference. What he had to do was to show that here was a different group that had this willfully amateurish approach, in a way, to undercut, you know, we all know about the dinosaur acts and we all saw them, you know. And he knew that by showing these bands, and this band in particular, could play and perform and show out and step out, he would inspire other people. Well, and of course, it, it still does. I mean, that one album uh, continues to inspire bands. And when you look at the live footage of the Pistols, um, you know, Johnny Rotten may be asking, you ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Ah, ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Good night. But you, you, you couldn't take your eyes off what you had just seen. No. You know, it, yeah. it was gripping and galvanizing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and still inspirational. So I, I think that the interesting word in the lexicon in regards to McLaren is punk, really, because these days we have punk architecture or punk bakers or punk artisanal coffee makers. I'm sure there are. <laughs> you know, I haven't, I haven't had any, but I'm sure it's out there. And he defined it a bit later on when uh, he was backstage at a fashion show in Milan these, in 1982, so five years after 1977, right? That's really when punk broke. Um, and he defined it as being DIY and anti-corporate. And yeah. really, those things you can apply to hip-hop. You can apply to any musical or media uh, genre where people are stepping out 
beyond you know the received way of ways of working and doing it for themselves. McLaren, of course, was married to uh, Vivian Westwood, who would go on to become a superstar in the world of fashion. There's a point in the book where uh, somebody is talking of Vivian Westwood and uh, Malcolm McLaren, that they were rooted in that kind of particularly British, Victorian fascination with the naughty. You know, <laughs> they were obsessed right. with sex. Right. Um, I mean, you know, at one point, the ever-changing uh, McLaren Westwood boutique was called sex, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you get to Bow Wow Wow, sexualizing uh, a very young teenager in Annabella Lewin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a misguided moment, I would say. I wouldn't say that most of it is, because actually in McLaren's mind and in a way, he was quite childlike, and this is by no means, I'm not defending him, I, I think you realised if you looked at the book, it's not a hagiography, I do oh, no. kind of present a warts and all figure. I genuinely believe that having come out of the counterculture, one of the tenets of the counterculture was the, you know, um, freedom for kids. It was that kids should be able to express themselves in every which way. But when you're talking about sexuality... Uh, in, you know, teenage uh, girls in particular, it gets very, very tricky. And I think that after the Sex Pistols, there is some sense with McLaren that he's hooked on outrage beyond substance, if you see what I mean. Mm. The, Mm -hmm. um, the, The Sex Pistols did it naturally, just by walking down the street or sitting in a pub or conducting an interview. It came to them naturally. In a way, it looks slightly forced, at the same time, there are merits to such uh, activities as presenting Annabella Lewin, who was the lead singer of uh, Bow Wow Wow, in um, a kind of recasting of this 1860s painting by Manet called uh, Déjeuner sur l'herbe. Right, um, right. And so in that painting, the uh, people are clothed at the picnic And there is a young woman who is naked. It's not revealing, but it's clear that she's naked. Now, for McLaren to use that as the idea for an album cover, I don't think was pornographic in intent. I think that there was some kind of naive art intent and also this willingness to shock. Or, you know, he used to quote Thomas Fuller's dictum, which is, craft must have clothes, but truth loves to go naked. And so he said that Annabella was the truth in that painting. When you're looking at the, or when you're using the kind of degraded form of popular music, that stuff does, doesn't fly, does it? It goes over yeah. everybody's yeah. heads. And it's a shame because, you know, there were things that are, were so far ahead of their time, the rhythms, uh, you know, uh, of, of what Bow Wow Wow was doing. mentioned his role in hip-hop early on and it's stunning to look back on the history of hip-hop you know it was not mainstream music in 1983 when he made duck rock here he was sort of embracing this new york street art the last person on earth that you would think would be in new york at the time making a record like duck rock but there it was uh, what was it like zulu chants in that song and appalachian folk music and yeah. you know break dancing as part of the presentation, this mess that he was creating, and yet making something that there was a pop-up. Buffalo, 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 Buffalo. 
the outside, round the outside, round the outside. You got it. Two buffalo gals go around the outside, round the outside, round the outside. Was that a genuine enthusiasm of his, or was it was this him sort of like fishing around for something that would get in people's face and, 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 and be confrontational in a way that was unexpected? No, I think it was a genuine enthusiasm. And also, it was if you look at his artistic practice, a lot of the time he was engaged in collage and clashing you know, strange and unusual juxtapositions together. And so it's only him, really, that would come up with working with such great technicians as Trevor Horn, say, the producer, or Gary Langan, the engineer, who come up with the idea of, well, hey, you know, let's put square dancing together with hip-hop, because these are both folk musics. These are both musics from the street, which are giving the news to, to those who are involved in it. So I think he was genuinely attempting something new because it goes back to that thing about being bored with the de rigueur and the doctrinaire and the received he was also very influenced by this experience when he was researching music at the Beaubourg library in Paris where he came across a whole bunch of Folkways albums uh, Folkways was a great label right it's like an incredible label they put out everything from Scottish waltzes to electronic music usually beautifully packaged and that was he told me that was one of the appeals is that the packaging and they had these instructional leaflets and there's a particular series that they put out called Dances of the World's Peoples and this was the music from around the world that was listened to as folk music uh, and so you got merengue in there and he um, he decided that this could be the model for a travelogue. I think he was quite influenced by Orson Welles. I know he was a lot of the time. And um, he decided to create a kind of oral travelogue where he investigated folk musics. So you can see it as him kind of trying to upset the apple car in a way. But at the other point, at the other side of it, if you look at those videos, here's somebody who's thoroughly enjoying themselves, right? Whether they're in Soweto, whether they're with the uh, double Dutch girls skipping in a gym in the Bronx. You know, here's somebody who's really celebrating this stuff. And there's something mm -hmm. very joyful about that album, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. And childlike, again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. we, we've heard a lot from Leiden about his, uh, his attitude toward his former manager, did Malcolm ever express any kind of remorse or any kind of feeling toward Lydon that you can share? I think John Lydon, it was quite interesting what he said when Malcolm died. You know, he said, that, you know, he was an entertainer and, you know, remember that first and foremost. You know, he kind of had a lot of time for him. They sparred a lot. But I think the McLaren's view, and here's the thing about his personality, was that he wasn't particularly vengeful. He didn't hold grudges. He got over things very quickly. He had that thing which is obviously suppressed anger, which was the laugh all the time. You know, if he, he if you notice in public exchanges, many of which are recorded, he never loses his temper. He would just mm. laugh. But I think mm -hmm. his view was that, do you want to get off the shelf and come for an adventure or not? And John Lydon, the day that he was in the Roebuck pub in the King's Road and invited back by McLaren to sing into a showerhead to I'm 18 by the Alice Cooper band, you know, as a rehearsal. 
as a as an audition that day changed on Leiden's life and I don't think he would dispute that at all and the fact is mm -hmm. during the writing of my book uh, it became clear that the three other members of the group they were practicing musicians they were beginning to become and their ambitions were to become professional musicians they didn't turn up for the first rehearsal with John Lydon. They couldn't see why Malcolm had gotten this singer who couldn't sing. So they didn't recognise his charisma or his potential. And so McLaren absolutely berated them and said, you've got to go with this guy. He will work out for you. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think Lydon would, rec would, you know, accept that, definitely. We have been talking to Paul Gorman from the UK about his new book, the Life and Times of Malcolm McLaren. I love the design, too, Paul. Oh, good. The Thank A's you. are both circle A and <laughs> uh, So, so very fitting. It's it's a real accomplishment. Thanks for Thank coming on the show. Thank you very much. Well, it's been great. Great to talk to you guys. Thank you very much for having me. As always, we want to hear from you. Have you seen this love-hate new Sex Pistols show? What'd you think? Leave us a voice message on our website. Coming up, we'll talk with music supervisor Susan Jacobs about her work on the HBO series Sharp Objects and Big Little Lies. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. And we are back. This week, we're revisiting our interview from 2018 with Emmy-winning music supervisor Susan Jacobs. Her job as a music supervisor is to carefully choose the perfect tracks for films and television shows that elevate those visual mediums to a whole new level beyond what's written on the page or shown on screen. Let me just name a few of the movies she's worked on. She's Gotta Have It, Shortcuts, Kansas City, Basquiat, Capote, Little Miss Sunshine, Silver Linings Playbook, American Hustle, Foxcatcher, Wild, and I, Tanya. I love that one. Hmm. Since we did this interview, uh, Jacobs also did Promising Young Woman. She's been a go-to music guru for a wide range of directors, including David O. Russell, Spike Lee, Robert Altman, M. Night Shyamalan, and more. That's right, Jim. When we spoke with her, she was doing the music for the HBO miniseries Sharp Objects, her second television collaboration with director Jean-Marc Vallier after Big Little Lies. Since our conversation, Vallier died in December 2021 at the age of 58, which was a shock to everyone. Uh, but we began the interview by asking her how she got into the music supervision business. I, you know, I got my start sort of falling, like I think most things I fell backwards into this field. You know, my first soundtrack album credit was project managing She's Gotta Have It mm -hmm. and worked very closely with Spike Lee's father who did the score for that album when I was working at Island Records. There's a girl that I once knew who often had a friend or two. She gave them time, love, wit, and rhyme sublime. They would come from far away and often gather there all day to show their love and see which one would stay. And then I went on to management. I kind of circled around this for a long time in different directions. And by the time that I actually knew there was such a job as music supervision, which came from a recommendation to Julian Schnabel for Basquiat, that was the first 
film I ever did on my own. You know, I approached it like, this is what my artist wants, Julian. This is what he wants, and I'm going to figure out a way to get all this music. You know, Susan, your job essentially didn't exist for a long time. I mean, it was one of those things that sort of evolved as music and movies developed this sort of synergistic relationship. It used to be that our orchestral scores made for these movies, right? And then the job also became not only these original scores, but then the idea of, of placing songs from the pop music realm or whatever genre into the movie to sort of help develop character, tone, and plot. Were you kind of a fan of this art form before you actually started doing it? Yeah, I used to actually play soundtrack albums. I was addicted to The Swimmer, the soundtrack oh, to the, yeah. the Swimmer that had the most beautiful Marvin Hamlish theme. Spartacus, and I think my record collection had almost equally soundtrack, vinyl soundtracks as it did bands. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always found that interesting, and I, you know, never in a million years thought about it as a job. I didn't know that it was a job, and even when I came in, really a lot of supervisors were working directly with record labels and then putting their music into movie where record labels are actually paying for mm-hmm, yeah. for supervisors and the music in the movies. You know, I'm just such a control freak in the fact that I don't want to be dictated backwards, but I really just always wanted the freedom to, you know, go wherever the movie and the director wanted to go and then end up having people bid on the soundtrack after that and not kind of work it in the other way because I just the being dictated to from that direction was never interesting to me. I think uh, where it's evolved, too, is that it's become a much more important factor in television. And now that you've got these miniseries that are sort of viewed as art forms on the level of a, of a, of a great movie, you've got this increasingly important role that music is playing in them. What intrigued you about these miniseries? Well, my only experience, I followed my director. You know, Jean-Marc Vallier and I had worked on a couple of feature films, and he said, okay, we're going here. And I was, that was my deep dive and came away with so much appreciation for that work. What do you look at in the ocean? What's out there? It's full of life. Dreams. Mystery. Monsters? Who knows what lies out there beneath the surface? 
And something I really liked about the two HBO series you worked on, Big Little Lies and Sharp Objects, was that they both featured female music geeks. You know, I think too often in movies and TV, male characters are the ones who uh, are the messengers of the cool music, you know, the ones whose lives are saved by rock and roll. Uh, First, I want to talk about Chloe from Big Little Lies, who's this little six-year-old girl who loves music, and we're not talking about Disney songs. You know, she is listening to some pretty great stuff. Mm. P.J. Harvey, Charles Bradley. She's amazing. I mean, Chloe yeah. with her, her her precocious little iPod, you know, telling her dad, you know, which Elvis <laughs> song he needs to play. No, 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 dad, you got to do this one. You know, she's a she's a already hanging out with the old '70s stuff, and uh, and then you know, introducing Leon Bridges to her mom. And, yeah, yeah. You know, she's like she's an incredibly precocious young young girl. Want to make up on this song? Come on. Been these so long. My heart's been This is a beautiful song, honey. Ten thousand miles gone. Take me to your river. I wanna go. Which you know, it's very much how John Mark planned it because he doesn't use composer so we are having to tell our emotive story through the licensed tracks which is very unusual for any director to kind of know that going through that I'm not going to use a composer and we're going to handle all these emotional beats through our you know through these characters That's a, I mean, so Chloe, you know, was really, she's the one that sort of was helping everybody narratively through her iPod tell that story. Well, there's also a character in Sharp Objects, uh, Alice, who helps tell the narrative with music on her iPod. She's a fellow patient in the hospital uh, with Camille, the show's protagonist. They were both dealing with problems with self-harm. Alice teaches Camille to use music, particularly Led Zeppelin, as a way to escape the internal uh, distress, the pain that she's experiencing. What I loved about Camille was that she didn't know anything about music. She gets into the hospital, and she's there with this young girl that, you know, kind of looks at her and says, what kind of music do you play or do you listen to? And she's like, I don't I don't like music. I never really listened to music. And the girl's, like, jaw just falls on yeah, the floor. Yeah, can't believe that. And she's, she's like, what? No wonder you're in here, girl. And she's like, well, <laughs> you're in here too, girl. And she goes, but I can get out of here. Yeah. And that I love that so much that she could teach somebody older than her. She's a teenager looking at somebody in her mid-20s and saying, I can teach you how to fly out of here. You don't even have to be in here. Mm. And teaching the power of music to escape your situations. You need cooling. I think that's what Led Zeppelin, you know, really signed on to was that music is a lot more than just some background thing in a restaurant or some pop act or some video. It can it plays a hugely important role in 
in so many lives. And if you're not familiar with it in that way and don't have that relationship, I'm hoping that Camille's character encourages everybody to kind of sit back and go, wait, I'm in this mood. I'm going to put on this record and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And you can fly off and it will totally change your mood. I think that's the importance of it. Well, you know, I got to ask you, though, uh, Susan, so did you ever have a conversation with the Alice character and say, why do you have such expensive taste? Because licensing Led Zeppelin songs ain't cheap. I wondered how that worked out because they're notoriously difficult to, uh, you know, extract music from or allow their music to be used in films or, or, or TV shows. You know, when Jean-Marc knew that Led Zeppelin was his fantasy to be able to use it, I don't know if he ever thought this would really happen, but he put it in my hands and said, if I could find anything for Alice and Camille, this would be what it was. And I started working on that way before we started shooting. And we started the really early conversations and working with a wonderful woman over at Warner Chapel. You know, we just kept shaping the letters and the communication until it became really clear that, you know, when you look at episode three and you have that scene where Camille then turns around and also shares, you know, helps young Alice in a painful moment going, come on, let's get out of here. Mm-hmm. And she puts on, thank you. If the sun refused to shine I would still be loving you When mountains crumble to the sea There will still be you and me Any artist is going to go, that's why I spend all this time writing Mm. and making music, which isn't easy. And I think that's not like you could go to Led Zeppelin and go, here, let me give you like this huge check so we can do whatever we want because it's it's never going to be about that for any artist it's always going to be like how do you want it i'm sure there are a lot of commercials that offer led zeppelin more money than they could imagine and they go nope thank you i mean it really is about those artists looking at the way that this music is affecting these characters and the way that jean-marc takes such good care of music in terms of its authenticity about where it's coming from and feeling like, okay, and, you know, for them, it's super smart because the demographics of the show, a lot of them don't, have never heard these songs. So they're so smart because this aerates their catalog and it helps people find them. And But more importantly, it helps people realize the power of what their music can do in a painful moment. And so it wasn't really, you know, people think like, The difficulty was just having a lot of patience and trying to put across why this was really important. And they, one day, they just got it. When we return, music supervisor Susan Jacobs tells us more about selecting the soundtrack to the HBO miniseries Big Little Lies and Sharp Objects. She'll also tell the story of putting together music for the film I, Tanya during a chaotic production period. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. And we're back. 
This week, we're revisiting our interview with music supervisor Susan Jacobs. In 2017, Jacobs won the first ever Emmy for music supervision for her work on the HBO miniseries Big Little Lies, directed by Jean-Marc Vallier, who passed away after this interview first aired. In that show in particular, Jacobs profiled a lot of new artists, and in many ways, I think music supervisors are the new talent scouts because they're introducing millions of people to relatively unknown artists. An example would be Michael Kiwanuka, one of our favorites, whose song Cold Little Heart was a theme song to Big Little Lies. In this curation thing, it's not about whether the song is popular or not. Obviously, Led Zeppelin has a certain cachet. Michael Kiwanuka does not, for a mainstream audience, certainly. So are you kind of feeling like, oh, I don't care about cachet as much as I care about what the song is saying and how it's going to work for this for this scene or this character or this show? Yeah, it's always, it's always what's going to convey the emotion that you want. Michael Kiwanuka was actually in Big Little Lies and kind of fell upwards. So that was what was such an interesting discovery was that it was sort of in a scene already and then it Mm -hmm. fell upwards into that title. But when you look at the power of what that has done for his career and Leon Bridges' career Mm -hmm. just went right back up on the charts and then you've got somebody like Sylvain Esso would come down and the acid with tumbling lights. It's really exciting, and I also think that's the power of how Jean-Marc uses the music because it's it's emotional. It isn't just, you know, it's really, he's a painter, he's a weaver. You know, he uses little bits of it here and there, so you hear the Sylvanesso come down at the very beginning with them roller skating, it's really cool, but then it will keep coming around and around, and, and it, it, it hits that beat so that people really feel like they have a relationship with that song by the time we get to the end of the series. I think that's what, to me, makes a big difference about how it is. And it's an, it's always about what's conveying the emotion mm-hmm. that the director wants to convey. As you know, I always tell people, music is a point of view. Our job as supervisors is to make sure that everybody's understanding the different points of view that are possible. And for someone like Jean-Marc, it's really working backwards from where he's trying to go with the characters because he's, this is how he, this is him, you know, I'm working with him more in the composer capacity. This is what we need to do here and where we're going here. And he's he's very clear about the emotions of what, what he wants to do. And there's no, nothing is in there casually. I want to talk some more about your work in movies. You did the music for I, Tanya, that 2017 film that Craig Gillespie made about uh, Tanya Harding, the controversial figure skater. The haters always say, Tanya, tell the truth. There's no such thing as truth. Everyone has their own truth. 
Now, do you ever feel constricted by the time periods that you have to pick music from? Because although I, Tanya takes place in the 80s and the 90s, the soundtrack's almost entirely 70s hard rock. Why was that? Well, I, Tanya was a film that I came in fairly late on, and it was a, a film that had that Craig had had cut his film using a lot of source music, and those songs are tend to be really expensive, but also nobody wanted to be in that movie, I have to tell you. Like, <laughs> nobody... Uh, so when I walked in the door, kind of more as like, we're hemorrhaging over here, and we don't know how to save this film, and I was super busy and going, oh my gosh. And I looked at the movie, and I thought it was really good. The first thing I realized was that we have to change the narrative about what people think about Tonya Harding, mm-hmm. and to to do that, and to you know try and flip that around. And so he had already known that he wanted to use a lot of 70s music, which was a little odd, because it really doesn't have anything to do with that period, that time, that, you know, Tanya Harding didn't happen in the 70s. I mean, so... Yeah, but that's but, kind uh, of what so, formed her, right? Well, you could say that, but it really for Craig, you know, this goes down to the power of music and film, was that when I said to Craig, why all the 70s music? And there was a, a lot of homages already to American Hustle. I was like, mm-hmm. wow, that was already featured in American Hustle or this or that, which I which I love, you know, and and, and David O. Russell does too, you know, he he. So, you know, when you influence other directors, it's amazing. And he was like, well, I, you know, there's something really emotional and warm about those rock songs in the 70s. You're in my way. That. When you sit down and try and temp in 80s and 90s, you're, you're right. You don't have the warmth of the scope of the sound of the 70s. So mm-hmm. it really started with the picture. Picture first. Picture's always first. What's going to serve the picture? And so those songs ended up really being something about it was so important on Itania that that music stayed warm and that she, so that we could, and had power because otherwise she, you wouldn't like her. And if I tried a couple of 90s things and I tried a couple of 80 things and it was totally, film didn't want it and it made her colder. <laughs> so we really had, we worked really hard. So I already, he already had, you know, his arrow pointed in, I want 70s music. And then we just worked really, really hard to get what we wanted and to put things in there. And you're always just serving narrative and serving picture. But the most difficult thing of Itania was getting people to understand that this was a really important story to be told. And, you know, we Mark Knopfler was so gracious because he had turned down the Dire Straits song Romeo and Juliet several times saying no way. That was before I came on board. And then I reached out, spent four hours writing the right letter, <laughs> sent it off, and sent him the first reel and said, I'm just asking you to take a look, and if you want to see the rest of it, let me know. And then I got a call from management and send the rest, and I knew that he would understand that that was actually a really beautiful use of Romeo and Juliet. So, um, what, do you like, like me? <laughs> You're so pretty. 
you are. And it mm-hmm. was really great, but it was getting him. And then he wrote the sweetest note and said, "Thank you, Susan Jacobs. I would have never known." That was it. And he was so happy to be part of that film then. So I think it's really about communication, artist to artist. You know what Craig's trying to do, why it's important, and why that music belongs there is a lot of it. And you know the same thing working on American Hustle or Silver Lining Playbook, which we had you know really early Alabama Shakes and very very early Alt J. Alt J was just a baby band Mm. at that point. It's it's so great when you realize that you're getting this great marriage of of visuals and artists, and then also to see that I was saying I went to see the most amazing ELO concert. They are out there playing. Jefflin is playing the most amazing shows right now, and to see ten oh five three eight Overture <laughs> live just blew blew me up. so great but I also I had a feeling like I bet American Hustle had a lot to do with putting that back in the playlist because that guy's got one hit song after another it's not like he you know but I bet that that's the influence of film and you you know you kind of think I bet that gave a lot of new life to that song because the crowd went crazy over it crazy it wasn't one of those uh, you know top 20 yellow you know, greatest hits. It, it definitely no, and he's a got cut. he's got a top forty. There, I mean, yeah. every song he plays, you can't believe. Like, oh my god, he wrote that too, and yeah. he wrote that too, and he wrote that too. It's kind of amazing. All right, I got one question for you. So you're the uh, music geek like us in terms of you know how does how does music work in the world? And obviously, you're a big fan of music working in film and TV. Besides your own projects, what if you had to say to anybody? Give me an example of how music and audio and video can work together to create something, sort of a third thing that's the greater than the sum of the parts. What's, what's your best example of that? <laughs> go see Easy Rider. Uh, uh, yeah. Go see Go see The Graduate. <laughs> and here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. Jesus loves you more than I mean, those are the things that all of us strive to make the graduate again. Midnight Cowboy, Mm -hmm. my goodness. I mean, Harry Nelson, you know, when you have that, especially Midnight Cowboy, when you have that collaboration between composer and then an artist like Harry, I mean, all of us are trying to keep making that. (laughs) Mm. None of us have gotten there. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear words saying Only the echoes of my mind People stopping still I can't see their faces 
Only the shadows of their eyes I think about Midnight Cowboy and how that soundtrack played to make that dark and deeper and more, you know, it's amazing and you can't even look at The Graduate without thinking about the Simon and Garfunkel soundtrack to that. Yeah. We're all trying to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, I, you know, should I have anything that ever comes close to that kind of collaboration with a solo artist being able, but also the industry was braver then. I think people just took, you know, music played a looser role. It was more, you know, things weren't as managed as they are now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think there's some young kid falling in love with your work now who's thinking the same thing. Someday I want to do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think you're inspiring a new generation there. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. We've been talking to Susan Jacobs, one of our favorite music supervisors. It's uh, It's been a real pleasure, Susan. Thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. Oh, great. Thank you all. That wraps up our interview with music supervisor Susan Jacobs, and now we want to hear from you, our listeners. What's a film or television show that you think uses music really well? Leave us a voice message on our website or start a thread in our Facebook group. Mr. Cott, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have more buried treasures. We're going to dig up some songs that have been floating underneath the mainstream radar, but we think you need to hear them. And don't forget to check out our bonus podcast for a new addition to the Desert Island Jukebox. The bonuses are a treasure. The treasures are a treasure. Nothing but, <laughs> nothing but treasures on Sound Opinions. For more Sound Opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our social media consultant is Katie Cott.